Welcome to the Truth About False Confessions podcast. I'm Alan Hirsch, Chair of the Justice and Law Studies Program at Williams College and an expert on false confessions. I travel around the country testifying at trials of people who confessed to serious crimes but claim they did so falsely. Each podcast will consist of a single case I was involved with. Some are tragic, some are harrowing with a happy ending. I trust that you will find each one engaging and provocative, and I will begin with perhaps the most unusual and disturbing. On November 24, 2017, the eve of my 58th birthday, I received a slightly premature gift, an email that initiated my involvement in an amazing case. It came from a well-established lawyer in the small town of Lebanon, Ohio, Charlie Ritgers, who got right to the point. We represent an 18-year-old who gave birth to a stillborn baby and buried the baby in her backyard. We want to know if you are interested in becoming our expert. The we was Charlie and his son, Charlie, who practiced law together. When I returned Charlie Sr.'s call, I heard about a case that would tantalize soap opera devotees. When 17-year-old cheerleader Skylar Richardson became pregnant, she told no one, not her parents, the child's father, or her friends. But since she did not have an abortion, wouldn't everyone eventually see that Skylar was pregnant? Actually, no. In part because of an eating disorder, Skylar never appeared to be carrying. In fact, two days before she gave birth, Skylar attended her high school prom. Some of her friends briefly wondered if she might be pregnant, but dismissed the idea. Until well into the third trimester, Skylar concealed the pregnancy even from herself. She did not know for sure until April 26, 2017. On that date, Skylar visited an OBGYN to obtain birth control though she also told him that she suspected she might be pregnant. A sonogram revealed that she was in fact 32 weeks pregnant. Even at that point, Skylar did nothing to prepare for childbirth or mothering, nor did she take action to terminate her pregnancy apart from Googling how to get rid of a baby. No one else ever would have learned about her pregnancy, much less the outcome had Schuyler not returned to the OBGYN's office for birth control on July 12th, 10 weeks after her initial visit. This time, she saw a different physician, but the new physician knew about Schuyler's pregnancy from her file. When she asked Schuyler what had become of it, Schuyler tearfully confided that she had given birth to a stillborn child in the bathroom in her house in the wee hours a few weeks after learning she was pregnant. She further explained that she had buried the child in her backyard without telling her parents or anyone else. When Schuyler left the office, the physician called the police. Two days later, a police officer showed up at the Richardson's front door. He told Schuyler's father, Scott, that he wanted to speak with her about some undisclosed matter, but assured Scott that his daughter was not in any trouble. Believing the officer, Scott Richardson drove Schuyler to the police station. Lieutenant John Fain and Officer Katie G. read Skyler her Miranda rights, something normally done only when someone is suspected of a crime. 
But the officers seemed more interested in obtaining information than a confession. Indeed, they seemed to accept Schuyler's account of the stillbirth and assured her she was in no trouble. But six days later, when Lieutenant Fane brought Schuyler back for more questioning, again assuring her parents that he merely wanted to clarify a few things, the officers' motives and methods were markedly different. Lieutenant Fane again led the questioning, this time accompanied by a different female officer, Detective Brandy Carter. They told Schuyler that evidence irrefutably established the falsity of her, her account and claimed to know this with, in Fane's words, medical scientific certainty. Throughout the questioning, they expressed the unwavering conviction that the baby was not stillborn. I need to take a step back and say a word about the most common method of interrogation used by law enforcement all over America. It is called the Reed Technique because Reed and Associates has produced the most influential interrogation manual and training programs. Technically, the Reed Technique consists of nine steps, but only two are important because they are what break people down and lead them to confess. The first we call confrontation and it consists of interrogators expressing certainty of the suspect's guilt and aggressively thwarting his denials, as well as confronting suspects with evidence, often exaggerated or fabricated, allegedly establishing their guilt. The second step is to minimize the suspect's crimes. Minimization involves introducing themes that implicitly reduce the severity of the crime or the suspect's culpability, such as accident, provocation, justification, and secondary role. Confrontation communicates to the suspect the futility of maintaining innocence, whereas minimization implies that confessing will avert serious punishment. Confrontation frightens the suspect and brings on despair. Minimization supplies a lifeline. Especially when used together, these tactics break down innocent as well as guilty suspects. In the case of Schuyler Richardson, I already described the confrontation, the insistence that evidence established with 100% certainty that she killed her baby. This confrontation was accompanied by extensive minimization. The officers insisted that the only purpose of their inquiry was a proper burial for the baby. They said they did not think that Schuyler deliberately harmed the baby, and Lieutenant Fane assured her that babies frequently die shortly after they are born. It happens literally every day, he said. Detective Carter urged Schuyler to tell us everything that happened and we can move on. And Lieutenant Fane added that we're never going to, like, all of a sudden judge you or jump up and say you're going to jail. Such comments constituted extreme minimization because they implied that Skyla would receive no punishment if she confessed. The officers repeatedly assured her that her actions were excusable, as when Detective Carter said, you were in shock, I'm sure, and all alone. For good measure, during much of the interrogation, Detective Carter tenderly held Skyler's hand, acting more like a supportive mother than a detective intent on a confession. It worked. Skyler broke down and admitted that the baby had been born alive and that she killed it. How she did so was unclear, with the officers unable to extract details from the distraught teen. 
Two weeks later, a grand jury indicted Schuyler for aggravated murder, involuntary manslaughter, endangering a child, and abuse of a corpse. If convicted, she faced life in prison. However, she spent only a weekend in jail before her parents paid a $50,000 bond to procure her release. Two years later, her case had still not gone to trial and kept her from going to college. But Schuyler had received a steady dose of punishment in the form of relentless abuse on social media. More on that later. As I analyzed the materials provided to me by the Richters, I realized that the key to the case was determining why the police changed their approach from the July 14th interview to the July 20th interrogation. The answer soon became apparent. At the conclusion of the first interview, Schuyler led the police to the plot in her backyard where she buried the baby. The corpse was exhumed and taken in for testing that, according to the state's forensic expert, Elizabeth Murray, showed charring on the bones. The baby had apparently been burned. The police concluded that Schuyler had burned her baby, either to kill it or to cremate it in order to hide evidence of the killing. In either case, the burning indicated her guilt. As it turned out, the alleged burning was actually evidence of Schuyler's innocence because it never happened. Upon closer examination months later, Murray declared herself mistaken, and other experts concurred that the baby had never been burned. But the initial error led law enforcement to decide Schuyler was guilty and subject her to the interrogation tactics known to break people down, again, the innocent as well as guilty. And watching the July 20th interrogation, a striking moment came after Schuyler confessed to killing her baby, when Lieutenant Fain informed her that they also knew she had burned the child. Schuyler looked flabbergasted. She said she had no idea what he was talking about. But before long, they extracted from her that she had indeed burned the baby, something we now knew to be false. After the officers had the confession they wanted, they allowed Schuyler's parents into the interrogation room and kept the camera running. Watching Scott and Kim Richardson first confront and then try to comfort their daughter, and then discuss the case with the police when they returned, was as painful as anything I have seen in the countless hours of police videotapes I have reviewed over the years. Scott and Kim had been told that their daughter faced criminal charges, and Scott asked Schuyler what she said to the officers that led them to charge her. Schuyler replied sheepishly and weirdly, I tried to cremate her a little. Soon thereafter, Lieutenant Fain returned, and Scott implored him to explain why he misled them into thinking Schuyler was not in trouble and could talk to the police freely. Fain replied, non-responsively, that the law allows law enforcement to treat an 18-year-old as an adult. When Scott protested that they had exploited a vulnerable teenager, Fain replied, she was 18 and that changes the game. Game indeed. Before my eyes, Scott Richardson tried to come to grips with the fact that he had trusted the officers and allowed them to interrogate his daughter. At one point he protested that, she's a stupid kid, you could have got her to say anything. I often think about that observation by Mr. Richardson. Of everything spoken and written about this case, all the documentaries and press conferences and trial testimony, including my own, that remark by Schuyler's father, 
you could have got her to say anything, was perhaps the single most incisive. A frightened, susceptible teenage girl faced off against two police officers intent on using bluster and trickery to obtain a confession. It was a mismatch, and not because the officers had truth on their side. They could have gotten Skylar to say anything, and they did. They got her to confess to homicide. Listen to Scott Richardson reflect on what he learned from the experience. If the police can lie to you, I can't think of a single instance where anyone should ever talk to an officer for any reason, period. That's just wrong. I have lost faith in that. And okay. I think it's, you're seeing that in society today with what's going on. You know, I used to think, why would someone run if they're innocent? Well, now you know, because it doesn't matter if you're innocent or not. If they need something, it, it, I mean, they can ruin you anyway. While Schuyler's confession set in motion an irreversible train of events, something that happened soon after should have reversed it. As noted, the state's own experts came to acknowledge that the baby was not burned. The prosecutors should now have realized that Schuyler's entire confession was at best highly unreliable. Her acknowledgement of the non-existent burning indicated that she regurgitated whatever officers Fain and Carter wanted her to say. The burning was not the only instance of this. The officers repeatedly raised the notion that the baby gurgled, and in the course of her subsequent admissions, Schuyler used that precise term. The compromised confession meant the state had no meaningful evidence of Schuyler's guilt. To the contrary, circumstantial evidence suggested her likely innocence. Data indicate that emotional trauma, malnutrition, and premature birth all correlate with stillbirth. Common sense suggests that the unassisted home birth following a pregnancy free of prenatal care would only add to the risk. Under the circumstances, the DA should have reduced the charges against Schuyler if not dropped them altogether. Instead, he got the grand jury to charge her with homicide. How could the prosecution possibly obtain or even desire a verdict of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt when the only evidence was a confession they knew to be false in at least one major particular? They decided to try, perhaps for political reasons. Lebanon, Ohio is part of America's conservative heartland, and most of its residents are strongly pro-life. Even if Schuyler did not kill her baby, she did not safeguard her. The stillbirth could be traced to her negligence. Was her behavior that different from procuring an abortion? District Attorney David Fornshell, who prosecuted Schuyler, boasted in a press conference that he is pro-life, something that would seem irrelevant, but perhaps amounted to his effort to curry favor with a prospective jury. It also bears mention that Forshall's position is elected. He may also have been currying favor with voters, using this high-profile case to advertise his devotion to the unborn. Eventually, Fornshall offered Schuyler plea bargains that perhaps reflected recognition of the weakness of his case and uncertainty that he could obtain a conviction. The most generous offer, tendered in July 2019, was to manslaughter, carrying a sentence of 7 to 15 years with the judge to determine the precise amount. After consulting her parents and attorneys, Schuyler declined the offer, and the case went to trial, but not until September 3rd, more than two years after her arrest. 
During that long interim, legal issues worked their way through the Ohio Courts of Appeals. In the meantime, the case attracted national attention, including from People Magazine and the Washington Post. Even though I knew about the widespread coverage, I wasn't prepared for the hoopla when I stepped into the courthouse. The typical state criminal trial, even for major felonies, attracts little attention. Normally, the hallways of the courthouses I enter are nearly empty, accommodating at most a security guard, a few people waiting to testify, and a few attorneys or staff strolling to the restrooms or water fountain. The courtroom itself usually includes the lawyers, court personnel, a handful of family members or friends of the defendant and victim, and maybe one reporter from the local newspaper. What I saw in the Lebanon, Ohio courthouse was strikingly different. In the hallway, a long table had been set up. Roughly 20 people sat around it with their computers. They were members of the media, watching the trial on their screens and writing up their stories. Inside, the courtroom was crowded. My testimony itself turned out to be fairly typical. I informed the jury of what we know about false confessions and the Reed technique, and how the officers in this case used a textbook version of it on Schuyler. I returned home with the trial still going and watched some of what remained on the Law and Crime Network. I was especially interested in the testimony of another defense expert, Dr. Stuart Bassman. One of the first things I did when the Ritgers retained me a few years earlier was to recommend that they also retain a mental health professional to evaluate Schuyler. To my eyes, she seemed frightened and eager to please and therefore quite vulnerable. However, I am not a mental health professional. My testimony would focus on the interrogation tactics, not on Schuyler's particular susceptibility. Having both types of confession experts' testimony, one about the interrogation tactics, one about the defendant's special vulnerability, can be a potent one-two punch. The Ritgers took my advice and retained Dr. Bassman, a psychiatrist in nearby Cincinnati. He evaluated Schuyler and found that she was highly suggestible meaning prone to be influenced by others. A particularly suggestible person is apt to tell authority figures what they want to hear. Dr. Passman also testified that Schuyler has the emotional maturity of a 12-year-old. The defense rejected my advice with respect to another defense witness, Schuyler Richardson herself. The decision whether to testify is ultimately up to the defendant, but they usually follow their attorney's advice. I urge the Ritgers to strongly consider putting Schuyler on the stand. Jurors have trouble accepting a false confession and want to hear from the defendant why she confessed falsely. Most criminal defense attorneys are understandably reluctant to put their clients on the stand, in part because then and only then the jury will learn about their criminal record. But Schuyler had no record. Defense counsel also worry that their frightened client will be made to look bad by an experienced prosecutor. But, I tell them, if your client gets broken down on cross-examination, this can be turned to your advantage. You can tell the jury, in closing argument, that jurors saw for themselves how the defendant can be tricked or bullied by an authority figure. The Ritgers shrewdly recognized, though, that in Schuyler's case, things were trickier. Schuyler later explained her decision not to testify. She said she followed her attorney's advice, and she explained their reasoning.
there's no really good way to do it is the thing you know you I could go up there and cry a river and some people would think I was faking it I can go up there and be my unemotional self and people would think I'm stone cold so it's like it's really hard to know what a jury would think um so it was really the best decision not to have me testify the decision not to have Skylar testify was vindicated she was found not guilty of aggravated murder involuntary manslaughter, and childhood endangerment, and found guilty only of a minor charge, abuse of a corpse. The judge sentenced her to three years probation, later reduced to 14 months. Despite the welcome verdict, I experienced nagging dissatisfaction. For one thing, two years is an awful long time for a teenager. Schuyler's life was essentially on hold during that period, and, as noted, she was subject to relentless vilification in social media. Even more importantly, while her saga had a happy ending, most false confessors don't have the resources to hire first-rate attorneys like the Ritgers. In addition, despite my gratification at being able to assist Skylar, I don't wish to pay short shrift to her stillborn daughter. Two things can both be true. Skylar made a terrible mistake, and was the victim of less excusable mistakes. We should not whitewash her actions nor ignore the harm they caused. Skylar doesn't. She acknowledges her wrongdoing, takes responsibility for it, and feels deeply the pain it caused. When I talked to Skylar, I was struck by several things. The first I have mentioned, the shocking extent to which she found herself vilified in social media. I knew that social media could be cruel, and that ballyhooed cases like Skylar's bring out the worst in people, but I still found myself repulsed by some of what she described. These are people like that you pass on the street every day that are like telling me they want to burn me at the stake and rip my ovaries out. Like that's concerning. That's very unusual. Um, so that was like hugely shocking to me. How disgusting and depressing. Skylar emphasized how surprised she was to learn that cops are allowed to lie. I'm somewhat jaded when it comes to lies from interrogators, so it was interesting to see what an impression the lying made on someone new to the criminal justice system who experienced it as a target. Indeed, the second interrogation of Skylar was essentially one big lie. The officers pretended to be her friends with her best interests at heart. They nonsensically claimed that their main concern was a proper burial for the baby. In reality, all they cared about was making Skylar confess. Their lying was accompanied by sanctimony. At one point, Detective Carter said, I never want to lie to anyone. At another point, Lieutenant Fain asked Skylar out of nowhere, How long do you think the baby was alive? This is a classic, when did you stop beating your wife question given that Schuyler had denied that the baby was ever alive. The cop's dishonesty made an impression on Schuyler, and perhaps on the jurors as well. My single biggest takeaway from talking to Schuyler was her maturity. Whether explaining why and how she kept the pregnancy from her parents or what she wanted to do with her life, she consistently exhibited wisdom beyond her years. I recall Dr. Bassman's testimony that Schuyler was exceptionally immature, and I wondered what to make of the disconnect between my impression and his professional assessment. I suspect that the experience of tragedy and two years of living with a life sentence hanging over her head 
caused Schuyler to grow up fast. But that was only a partial explanation. Just as there are different kinds of intelligence, there are different species of maturity. The Schuyler Richardson who gave birth to a child without telling a soul she was pregnant and even denying it to herself, coexists with the Schuyler Richardson who reflects with sophistication on what her experience says about herself, the criminal justice system, and society. Before wrapping up, I must offer a few final thoughts, starting with a return to something I mentioned a bit earlier, why I view the case with great relief but not joy. Again, the Schuyler Richardson case is the exception that proves the rule. The rule is that most criminal defendants, particularly those who confess, never have a chance. For every Schuyler Richardson able to hire elite attorneys like the Ritgers, there are many innocent people who get convicted, at least in part, because the defense cannot match the prosecution's resources. Schuyler was an exception to a closely related rule as well. Most criminal defendants, a disproportionate number of whom are poor and African-American, and many of whom are innocent, pass through the justice system with barely a trace and end up rotting in a penitentiary forgotten by all except perhaps a few friends and family members. Schuyler's case, by contrast, received national attention. That was partly because it is not every day that a teenager gives birth in her house and buries the baby in her backyard. But believe me, I get plenty of weird cases. To name just one, I had a homicide case that involved a total of 12 obviously false confessions from four different people, which differed one to the next on virtually everything and got basic facts about the crime wrong. All four defendants were African-American and three were found guilty. But such cases do not make it to People magazine. The fascination with Skylar Richardson stemmed partly from her being a white middle-class cheerleader, a profile that separates her from most criminal defendants. By and large, our society knows little and cares less about the innocent people who are coerced into confessing. But the exceptional nature of Skylar's experience should not blind us to the crucial aspects in which her case was all too typical. A vulnerable person was broken down by risky tactics used by police who were erroneously convinced of her guilt. That original error morphed into a full-blown prosecution for homicide that, despite the acquittal, had a devastating effect on an innocent family. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Truth About False Confessions podcast. I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you used to listen. To learn more, visit my website, truthaboutfalseconfessions.com.